Our second reading this morning is from Acts chapter 19, verses 30 through 41. You can find this in your bulletin. Hear the word of God. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. and Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the last two weeks we have been working through chapter 19 of the Acts of the Apostles, recounting Paul's visit to Ephesus. So, in the first week, we witnessed the invasion of Ephesus, not merely by Paul, but by the Holy Spirit. And this is accompanied by reasoned, bold persuasion and some miraculous works. In the second week, we see this invasion develop. It's more than merely a campaign of rhetoric more than the spreading of the newest ideas, the latest fashion of the intellect. Rather, real miraculous action is accompanying this invasion. We also see that this new invasion is producing imitators, wannabes, basically, trying to ride the coattails of the gospel, trying to hop on the bandwagon. And we learn that trying to counterfeit the Holy Spirit doesn't usually end well. This week, we will conclude this journey in Ephesus with a, admittedly, a curious story. So we're told that Paul plans to move on from Ephesus. He's spent nearly three years in total. We see that throughout the text. Three months here, two years teaching in the school of Tyrannus. Later, he says that he was there roughly uh, three years in total. And he's going to go on to Jerusalem by way of Macedonia and Achaia, spreading this new movement, which we learn initially was called the Way. 
got kind of a nice ring to it, you know. This is the way. Uh, yet the stance of this new movement toward idols doesn't sit well with the locals, clearly. So out of the woodwork, we have this Demetrius character. He's a disgruntled silversmith, rouses up a mob of artisans and the people, stirs up a near riot against this upstart movement, drags two of Paul's preaching companions to the great theater, and they're going to make them answer for all this trouble. The tension only increases when the rumor grows that the Jews are involved, and of course, we know their legendary attitude toward idols, so this doesn't help matters. And the whole place descends into chaos. So for two hours, the crowd is chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Just think of it, two hours of just shouting. Uh, eventually, however, cool heads of the city begin to prevail, pointing out that such behavior is frankly embarrassing and unseemly. And if word gets out to the wider community, to the wider world that this happened, it's going to undermine their credibility and reputation. And then just the story ends. It's really strange when you think about it. Uh, what does it mean? So you've got a pugilistic silversmith, works in the idol industry, supporting the local deity of his local temple of some town in Asia Minor, stirring up noise in defense of their silly little pagan cult. And where's Paul? He's not even allowed to be there. There's not even a stirring speech given in defense of the gospel or a wondrous miracle. Rather, a local official of this pagan society offers an appeal not to God, but to Artemis and to public image in the wider pagan world. And this is evidently what calms the scene down. It's really bizarre when you think about it. And it's easy to wonder why such a strange account is even given, seeing that it seems to end on such a flat note for the gospel. But this is to miss the point in the most extravagant way. So let's examine this silly little cult of this silly little temple in this silly little backwater town. For starters, Ephesus ain't some backwater town. It's one of the most prominent and preeminent cities of Asia Minor. Supports sea travel, commerce, boasted incredible wealth, cultural heritage, political prestige. More on that in a moment. Now, the patron goddess of Ephesus was Artemis. Throughout this region, you've got quite a pantheon of deities. Many places will serve one deity or another or many, but not Ephesus. Ephesus was a one goddess kind of town, and Artemis was their goddess. And though she shares a name and some features with the Greek Artemis, she's not the same. We should not confuse her with that deity. She's older. She has a different heritage. Uh, she's not a hunter, as uh, Artemis of the Greeks is, but she is considered a giver of life and death. She's referred to variously as a midwife. Uh, she is a champion of all virgins. And uh, during the Roman period, she takes on the name of Diana, much like the Greek version. And she's regarded as well as the daughter of uh, Zeus or Jupiter, depending on uh, how you say it. 
And by the time Paul shows up, she's simply understood to be the lady of Ephesus. Uh, now, uh, the, the good news for modern scholarship is that we have lots and lots and lots of statues of this Artemis. 400 or so. And we can learn a lot from uh, these statues. So this Artemis has a more kind of Egyptian, more Near Eastern flavor to her. Uh, she typically is uh, wreathed in garlands. Uh, her dress is a sort of tapered pillar. Uh, this is a common uh, form in certain parts of the ancient world. Covered with animals, real animals, mythical animals. And uh, she's crowned with a mural crown, which uh, looks almost like a castle or a temple is sitting on her head. And around her midsection, she is covered with orb-like objects. And these are traditionally believed to be eggs or breasts or something. Um, there's a lot of speculation about that. Uh, but the idea being that there's something to do with fertility or motherhood there. Well... That's Artemis. What's a goddess without a temple? So the temple of Artemis to which this text refers is not actually the original temple of Artemis. As early as the Bronze Age, the site was a dedicated sacred space. We don't know the exact date of the first temple's construction, but we do know that it was destroyed by a flood around the 7th century BC. Uh, indeed, the area seems to have been uh, prone to flooding, but... Rather than move the site, um, they they stayed put. And this gives us an indication that there was something about this particular place. And that was a very common element in the ancient world. You would have deities that would be associated with this place or that place, this mountain, that hill, this tree, that river. Uh, it's a very common theme, and this leads us to think that this uh, Artemis was the same sort of deity. Uh, so, the second iteration of the temple begins around 550 B.C., took nearly a decade to complete, largely marble structure, very impressive, and it dwarfed the Parthenon in size. So it measured roughly 337 feet long, roughly 160 feet wide. All right, this is pretty impressive. The pillars are about 40 feet tall. And according to tradition, this second temple was destroyed uh, on, on the birthday of Alexander the Great, July 2021, 20, 356 BC, in an admitted act of arson by one Herostratus, who was a fellow just looking to, to get a little time in the spotlight. Uh, well, he did. He, he certainly carried that out. And it was, uh, so dastardly that a mandate was issued forbidding anyone to name their children Herostratus. Uh, and ironically, he did get some fame because now we have, you know, uh, the idea of herostratic fame, which means you're willing to do anything and everything to get famous. So I guess in some way he got what he was, he was after, right? So not to be deterred, however, the Ephesians did not stop there, right? Um, I feel like this is the scene from Monty Python on the Holy Grail, right? This one fell down, it sank in the swamp, but we, we put up another one and then that went down, but not to be deterred. Incidentally, it was actually uh, in, a, in a kind of a swamp area. So, 
This version was literally one for the ages. If the second temple was impressive, the third was a source of astonishment. This version was roughly 30% larger than its predecessor. Measured 450 feet long by 225 feet wide, 60 foot pillars, more than 127 columns. And it wasn't enough that this thing is built out of beautiful marble. No, 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 no. The Ephesians coated the pillars with silver and with gold. These are massively decorated. Uh, the, the altar was capable of offering hundreds of animal sacrifices at a time. But wait, there's more! In addition to the impossible splendor of the structure itself, the temple served as a gallery of some of the most exquisite religious artwork and sculpture in existence at that time. Crafted by noted masters, a veritable who's who of the ancient world. So stunning was its beauty and the things it housed that thousands flocked annually just to gawk at this thing. So to say that it was the most glorious structure in that part of the world, and perhaps in the whole world at that time, or perhaps any other time, uh, would have been an understatement. Indeed, the Sidonian poet Antipater, known for his epitaphs and epigrams, spoke of the seven ancient wonders. This is actually one of the earliest references to the seven ancient wonders, and had this to say about the temple. I have set eyes on the walls of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on anything so grand. Now think of that. The pyramids, eh, shabby. Babylon, eh, shabby. This was no little temple in some backwater place. This was a center of the religious world. And it was precisely this glorious splendor that was taken both as the product of and evidence for the glory and might of Artemis and by extension Ephesus, right? So it took a lot of wealth to produce it, but that was a gift that kept on giving. So people saw, yes, Artemis looks out for Ephesus, who looks out for Artemis, right? This brings wealth prestige. When people see this magnificent thing, they think, well, they got something going on. And it brings more money into the city, more wealth, which in turn just feeds itself. But it, in fact, the temple was also a major financial center. Uh, and it was used in part as a bank, treasury, right? So there's a lot of stuff associated with this thing. And indeed, it wasn't just money that people wanted to secure there. People would come there seeking asylum. Indeed, it was considered to be one of the places where you would go if you were seeking asylum. So this is a very important uh, location. And this brings us, you know, to the Ephesians, it's safe to say that when it comes to religious life and worship and spectacle, nobody had anything on the Ephesians, right? So these aren't nominal adherents to their religion. They're not mere money grubbers. You know, you see a lot of interpretations. Oh, they're just looking to get rich and they don't really believe this stuff. Yeah, they actually did believe this stuff. They took it very seriously. 
And it was indeed precisely because of that seriousness that they earned the reputation, that people began to trust uh, what they were doing there. And they literally put their money where their mouths were. They would offer votive offerings of statues of Artemis. Uh, and indeed, it's very likely that Demetrius, you know, the, the text says that he was a maker of shrines. Uh, there's some speculation that it was common to make miniatures of the temple. Uh, you could sell this to tourists. You could sell it to locals. People might purchase this as a votive offering to make to the deity to show you're, you're serious about uh, your devotion. So it's into this city, this epicenter of religious life and culture, vast, developed, it's ancient, it's serious-minded, that Paul steps. To say that he had no chance and no hope of ever making converts should have been clear. But Paul didn't show up on his own. He didn't show up in his own name or in his own power. In three short years, this ancient city... All of its wealth, its splendor, its devotion to its deity has experienced so much of a wave of repentance and change that it gets public attention. So what do we make of this passage? There's a lot going on here. Uh, you could take away lessons about how the gospel is a scandal and offense to the world. True. Or how the gospel is not a commodity to be bought and sold. True. Or how believers should appropriately deal with hostility and conflict. Or how believers can serve in secular authority and still maintain the integrity of their faith. There's good evidence that some of the city officials were themselves believers, sympathetic to the gospel. And yet, they were able to maintain their way and soothe nerves. Or why patient reasoned discourse is always more productive than shouting of slogans. Or why you should never make or serve idols, or join riots in progress. Many many lessons we can get here, right? But there's something else in the text that I think deserves our attention, and it's almost drowned out by the excitement of all the stories in this passage. I'm going to suggest that this chapter is from end to end a story of repentance. And the Ephesians, these extraordinary pagans, have, in their turning to Christ, given us a glaring example of what true repentance looks like. So what is repentance? If you ask most people, there will be something to do with a feeling of guilt. I feel bad about something. I'm sorry for what I've done. For those who know they're Greek, they'll throw out the word metanoia or some version thereof. And they'll say, oh, it means a turning, a turning away, a changing the mind, turning away from sin. These are all true. But they're incomplete. So this word metanoia does in fact mean to change one's mind, to turn uh, in one's thinking. And without getting too much into the weeds of the, of the Greek, we can just say that it's to change how one's mind is. And so often, however, in the Christian life, repentance does just become a matter of that. Just merely turning away from sin. But if the focus of our attention is just in turning away from sin, rejecting sin, etc., then, in the most ironic and tragic way, sin becomes the compass star by which we steer the ship of our lives. 
I always tell my students that the story of Peter walking on the waves is the whole of the Christian life in a nutshell. So long as Peter's eye is fixed on Christ, nothing else matters. And yet, his eyes fixed on Christ doesn't change reality. The waves don't cease to exist. The very real danger that he is in doesn't cease to exist. But those very real dangers are not the focus. Peter has turned his eyes upon Jesus. And so long as his gaze is fixed upon the one who made the sea and gave it its power, then the sea, for all of its power, has no power over Peter. But the moment that Peter begins to give merit to the sea, to think about it, to look at it as a thing to be feared in face of the one who made it, then his eye is not and cannot be upon Christ. And in this moment, he gives the allegiance of his fear and his doubt to the sea, who takes it and with it him until he cries out for aid. And well does the master rebuke him. For in a way, Peter is in this moment engaging in idolatry. He gives more thought to the thing made than to its maker. We can engage in idolatry of things that our hands have not made. And with this we see in our own repentance of our own sins. Think how often we give more thought to the wrongs that we have ourselves done than to him who has redeemed us. And this, friends, is idolatry, plain and simple. It's not unlike the friend, you know, we've all seen it happen. They go through a rough breakup, and then they tell you, you ask them, how are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm fine. I'm so over that person. And then they give you a list of a thousand ways that they're so over that person, which incidentally, a thousand ways were constructed They expended energy developing this list of a thousand ways, right? Uh, So, friends, I'm going to submit that this isn't true repentance. What the Ephesians did was true repentance. We'll note that the first portion of the chapter, Paul introduces the Ephesians to the Spirit, right? Before this event, there were some converts, but nothing was really happening. He doesn't then leave, though. He doesn't just show up, hey, here's the spirit, bam, and then move on, right? He stays, he teaches, he spends days, weeks, months, years, daily speaking, debating, reasoning with people about the gospel. And his words aren't empty rhetoric, they're empowered by the spirit. And in time, people begin to respond. They repent. Now comes the rub. They're not merely sorry for what they've done. They don't merely confess what they've done. They act on it. And they act on it in three specific ways. First, they destroy the things that have been a source of sin to them. There's no fanfare. There's no lengthy speeches or debate or commemoration. No parades. There's only a bonfire. And into it are fed books that were a stumbling block, a source of sin. We saw last week, or uh, yeah, the staggering sum of money that had been invested in these books of magic. So Ephesus was known for its books of magic. You want something done? Go to Ephesus. Get a book of magic. That's the thing. All right? 50,000 silver pieces. Now, at that time, a silver piece was roughly a day's wage. Now, you do the math. 
50,000 days wages. I think that's 136 years-ish of just labor. It's not days off. It's not, right? That's, you do the math. That's a lot of money, all right? So to hold one of these texts is to hold wealth. And think about it. Think of all the good that could have been done with the money if those books hadn't been burned. We could keep them. We could sell them. Right? We don't need them anymore. And our pagan neighbors and friends, right? I mean, they're not converts. So what's the harm, right? They're going to buy them anyway. Why not sell these books to them? Right? They're no longer a temptation to us. We're under Christ, under his authority. Think of the good work for the church that that money would do. What a wonderful thing. Why not keep them as a reminder of the grievous nature of sin? And how often, friends, do we nurse a sin comfortably to our bosom? How often do we name a sin and then say, just a little while and soon I will put it away? Or just a little while and then Christ, the king of my whole heart? Or I'm merely flesh after all. (laughs) What can one do? Meanwhile, before we were yet born or even thought to speak all this tripe, the Ephesians burned their books of magic. Second, the Ephesians abandoned their cultic practice. They destroyed the things over which they had power and ownership, and they abandoned the things over which they didn't. And the temple was not under their ownership, so they simply abandoned it. They didn't make a public appeal to boycott it, chant slogans against it, attempt to burn it, whatever. They simply gave it over to itself in their complete absence and continued to proclaim Christ. And third, their proclamation of Christ was about Christ. You see, there's a difference. There's a difference between advocating for one thing and simply denigrating another thing. The focus was on Christ, not on Artemis. And these pagans have to admit that that's the case. They haven't slandered our deity. They haven't attacked the temple. They haven't, they haven't engaged in offense against us. They've just been focusing on their Jesus. And that's a very important thing. So, what can we take away from this? I think that in the last analysis, even in the pagan context, there's an understanding that what you put your focus on is what will drive you. Even Demetrius and his followers, they weren't chanting slogans down with Paul, down with Christians. They were trying to return the attention of the Ephesians to Artemis, great as Artemis. So they had some understanding that I think uh, we can take a lesson from. And I will say, friends, we have a father to whom we can turn from any depth of any sorrow or peril or sin or care. Reminds me of that old hymn by Helen Lemel. You know the one? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Indeed. When we look into his face, the light of his glory and his grace will make the things of this world grow strangely dim. 
Let us pray. Lord, invade us with your Holy Spirit. Let us look always ever and only to you, that in you alone we may live and move and have our being. Amen.